Yeah, what yeah, what have we done that isn't embarrassing? Uh, I don't know. So genetically engineer engineer <laughs> I'm not gonna do this at all. Um genetically and what did you say? You had you had a great one and then I fed it up. Genetic genetic algorithmed? Genetically algorithmized. What what are we looking for here? What is this? this Evolutionarily geneticist. It's so that it's so that Pete can describe what the podcast is yeah. in the most ridiculous terms possible. Yeah. How about the artificially evolved? Ah, I like that. Did we artificially evolve this podcast? I think we totally are. We are because we're going through several iterations. Yeah. And each one is more. Each ridiculous one gets thrown out and then morphed into the next. It's just right. been b- a bunch of bad mutations have happened. That's all. <laughs> That's like the basis of evolution, right? You exactly. gotta have a lot of bad, yeah. mu- bad mutations before you get to the good one. Exactly. Okay. So right. it's your genetic or no artificially evolved engineering podcast. Yeah. But, but now you gotta say it with dulcet tones. That's what I do. Yeah. All right. Let's hear it. All right. Welcome to How Do You Engineer? Your genetically algorithmized engineer. <laughs> That wasn't the one we agreed on. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you're fired. Welcome to How Do You Engineer, your genetically evolved engineering podcast. I'm a host, Peter Martin. I'm a host, Abby Desjardins. I'm also a host, Simon Whitmel. And I'm a guest, Paul Grushy. You said genetically evolved instead of artificially evolved. I said a lot of things. Yeah. And we, none of which were what we agreed on. This is why we don't have a script because Pete can't stay on script. <laughs> hey, I stand by it. All right. It's all part of a process. Paul, how do you pronounce your last name? It is pronounced Grouchy, although it is spelled Grouchy. Grouchy, yeah. yeah. We've been calling you Grouchy. Everyone does. That's, okay. That's common. Right. I, can't, I can't really blame them. No, me neither. I don't, I don't take it personally. Okay. Grouchy's more fun. It is really. <laughs> I always enjoy being grouchy. This week, we're talking about Paul Grouchy's last name. Yeah. Is it grouchy or is it grouchy? <laughs> How do you engineer pronunciation guides? Okay. Uh, we had somebody, somebody online said we should talk about human engineering. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, for, I think first off, let's talk about why Paul's here. Aww. Yeah, that thing. Let's, let's, iter- I, let's iterate again flying? on the evolution of this podcast to, okay. uh, to mention that Paul's here because he has a interesting and diverse background in evolutionary algorithms and how robots and computers are made smart. That sounds pretty cool. Yep. All right. That's what I'm calling it, even though he told me I'm wrong. Is that actually what you do? Is there, is it- <laughs> it's, a, it's a good approximation. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you're going to have lots of time to tell us all about that. Yeah. Look forward to it. First, we're going to go in a completely different direction. First, Simon will introduce something ridiculous. Someone online said we should talk about human bioengineering, well, biokinetics and engineering. So we're going to talk about prostheses. Yes. How do you engineer the best prosthetic? Well, the best. Well, it'd be ambitious. Pretty much any. I mean, we're, we're, we got to improve on the peg leg, right? Yeah. Do we? <laughs> Are you saying like the peg leg is the, is the epitome of prosthetic technology? Have you guys seen the Luke yes. arm? Yes. Luke arm is the epitome of prosthetic technology i have not describe it <laughs> the, the luke arm is a, a system developed by dean Kamen that is basically to me one of the most cutting edge pieces of engineering robotics that's been developed in the last decade it's essentially 
an 18 degree of freedom robotic arm that's fully interfaceable to the human brain through neural interfaces. It has full human degrees of freedom, um, couples to the body in such a way that it doesn't need, it's basically just attached to your torso. It has full touch, full um, haptics feedback. It's pretty crazy talk. That's insane. Where do they find so many degrees of freedom? Yeah, I don't even think I have 18 degrees. Fingers. Oh. Yep. This is like the manipulation of like a fingertip has 18 degrees of freedom. I stand by it. I can show you on my arm if you want. There's one, yeah. two, three, <laughs> okay. four, five, six, seven. This is doing so nothing on. for the listeners. No. You'll have to Pete's po- just counting. You'll have to take a picture of your arm so everyone can see your sweet tattoo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's Other, pretty stylish. Otherwise, it's a really, yeah, non, otherwise, a non-sequitur. With otherwise, no it's just the Pete counts hour. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right, so let's make it better. Yeah. Uh, so so let's you, make that awesome thing better. Should we choose a body part that we're going to replace? <laughs> <laughs> so first got to find somebody who is missing a body part. Because if you replace somebody they've already got, that doesn't really do them a lot of good. Yeah, I feel like a good a good idea is to find someone already missing a body part, not take it upon yourself to remove a body part from someone you can <laughs> I feel like replace. that's like a Batman villain. It's somebody who like takes away people's limbs so they'll have a reason to have prostheses. Maybe. If he know. gives them back, he wouldn't be much... Well, I guess he would be sort of villainous. I don't know. It just sounds just like Just chopping off be. people's limbs? That's pretty villainous. He could be the head of a super evil corporation that makes prostheses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Making, so, yeah. Making yeah. clients for himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds like the kind of thing they would have. Yep. Okay. So, somewhere between peg legs and... What was the... What was Dean Kamen's arm? Let's focus on pirates. Pirates? Yeah. Let's do it. Are we using, like, pirate-level technology, then? We should. Yes. We are we are revolutionizing Let's challenge the peg ourselves. leg using pirate technology. Mm-hmm. This is like steampunk peg legs or something. We can go steampunk, sure. Yeah, why not? I don't know. I mean, we, I feel, we got no rules. I feel like pirates. If it doesn't work, we'll just circle it back again and start the podcast over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying pirates had a lot of years to try and come up with the best technology, and what they came up with was peg legs. So, and it worked. <laughs> They're pretty durable. I mean, they last a long time, I think. They did. I really feel like we cannot say the best prosthetic. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's, let's apply ourselves a little bit to the, the challenge at hand. Okay. I, I really think those, the, the prosthetic legs that have the sprung, like they look like. Oh yeah. The big they, spring curvy. part thing. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. There's a, the blade. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, a carbon fiber blade. Yeah, so I feel like it's got to have that because that was the technology that they were saying made you better than people who had actual feet. Am I going to talk about Kingsman again? Is this going to be speed like every week I apply our ideas to Kingsman? I think so. I still haven't seen that movie, so I have no idea what you're referring. There's a woman in the movie who has a blade like you're describing, but it's an actual blade and spiky thing that she... Cuts yeah, so she has like the little the curved foot and then she has like the blade heel attachment for when you want to kill people <clears throat> I as feel, you do. Okay. Okay. That seems like a very specific application of prostheses. Also, it make it very difficult to fly. <laughs> <laughs> not, not like on your own, like in trying to get on an airplane with like a blade attached to your leg. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying, Simon. <laughs> I think like the clarification was justified. I was confused momentarily. Yeah, I thought yeah. we were going with angel wings. <laughs> I've always wanted to fly, but all my leg prostheses keep me on the ground. <laughs> oh, um, we're going to get into so much trouble. Um, okay, where we still... I think pirates could have made blade, like those blade legs. It's like they just need a piece of bent wood that's got sort of springy properties. So pirates with cutlasses on their feet? 
Okay, I was talking about like the product, the blade. I feel like when you're a pirate and you're climbing on rigging and stuff like that, having a blade leg is probably not going to serve you well. Okay, we need to make a distinction between a blade like a knife or a blade like the product. The, yeah, the the prosthetic. I'm talking about the style of of leg that they had for those runners that made them run really fast, but made out of wood because so they could have done it in pirate times. Mm-hmm. It did also just occur to me that we're totally ignoring Captain Hook and all of his accessorized hooks and pokey things and cigar holders and that is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, yeah. So you just have a you have a whole slew of attachments that you can accessorize with, like a Swiss Army hand <laughs> or leg. Let's stick with legs. A Swiss Army leg. I feel like there's less like useful attachments you could have for your leg, though. Yeah, like what? What would that include? I mean, there was a like, running leg, walking leg, rat, leg for climbing, leg for swimming, sleepy time leg, sleepy time leg, swimming leg. What was the What was the thing in uh, the Grindhouse movie? There was the woman who had like a sh- like machine gun leg. Yeah, you could do that in pirate times. Uh, I, was, I was thinking cannon. Cannon leg would be pretty sweet. See, that yeah. makes more sense. Yeah, or, or like a blunderbuss. <laughs> seriously no one else knows it's a blunder it's like a big shotgun no blunderbuss it's a great word it's a great word i'll give you that <laughs> okay we'll go with cannon since that doesn't make g- pete giggle like i a- just generally giggle it's fine <laughs> it's nothing to do with blunderbuss all right so swiss army leg yeah what, one of one of the swiss army legs has to be the like springy legs though i just feel like that would be awesome how would they make springing material out of like pirate wood? Bamboo. We learned about bamboo. Is bamboo springy? I thought it was very like rigid. I feel like you could la- like when you laminate different kinds of wood too, it gives you sort of springy properties. <laughs> you know, have you never used like use like a recurve bow? Yeah, it's just layers of wood and it springs back. Did you say laminate things? Yeah, yeah. They had glue. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it probably wouldn't have been. That I don't, I'm great. not up on my pirate history. I'm pretty sure they had glue. Mm. Okay. Let's start again. No, that's that's, that's definitely not. This has been like way less flowy. We tried to make this flow better and we've done horribly. We're doing a terrible job at it. Okay. No, I like the metaphor of we're, we're trying to mutate. We're trying to mutate the podcast into a better podcast. Yep. And evolution requires that we have a lot of failures before we hit on the good one. Yeah, I agree. All right, so there's a segue. If you'd that like to, fantastic. Uh, if you'd like to help us identify our failures, let us know on all of the social media places that we talk about, and try to be more specific than just like everything has failed. Yeah, or send me a text message that says you made me angry, which is what I got from the last episode. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's we're gonna have to, not I, helpful. <laughs> we're gonna have to have the the you made me angry guy on so that he can tell us all the ways we made him angry. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. do it. All right, that's a different episode for now segue into evolution tell us about how you can evolve some robots okay. nice segue that was, <laughs> that was a great segue yeah. <laughs> well I, actually tell us let's uh, tell us first how did you get to the point where you were the person who evolves robots yeah i sort of took uh, a very roundabout way to get here uh i didn't really know what i wanted to do or what i wanted to be uh, and i still don't actually but i'm getting there um so in in undergrad uh i did uh sort of Applied mathematics, so it's an engineering program with a specialty in, uh, in computer engineering. And I did an internship during that time at a at a major software company, and I didn't like it very much. And I thought I was going to be going into industry, but then I decided I would spend some more time in school because uh, I wasn't quite ready for the real world. But I didn't know what I wanted to do uh, in grad school, and so I sort of shopped around. Uh, I went uh, to meet a variety of different professors. 
uh, one of which uh, sat me down in a coffee shop and explained to me the concept behind evolutionary robotics. And this is something that I'd never heard of before, uh, and I'll tell you all about it in a second. But it really, it really caught my caught my interest uh, because when I was younger, I was I was much more interested in, in nature than in uh, engineering and mathematics. But my my school took me towards uh, towards math and engineering, and so then once uh, my that my professor sat me down and explained to me how you can combine, you know, what you know and what you learn about nature in the design of, of robots. It really, really got me going. And so that's how I ended up where I am. I feel like some of the coolest engineering is informed by nature, just because nature's had all this time to come up with really cool solutions to stuff. I agree. And nature is still so much better at all the things that we're trying to do than we are. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's a good goal to, uh, to aim for. And, and and we know it works, you know, we're here having this conversation because evolution works. And so it's time to try and apply it. Are there places where you, it doesn't work nearly as well? Cause I feel like, like from my own background, I've been working in a lot of fields of robotics where, um, biological systems are an inspiration, like beyond, uh, the type of intelligence and learning that I, you're going to talk about just pure mechanical design of, uh, robotic systems and stuff like that. Obviously, Biological systems are a, a, a way to look for inspiration, but are there places you think where we have a better analogous system that we can use as inspiration that isn't biological? For instance, I don't know, big data or something where it's sort of like we ha- we've come up with alternative processes that are more efficient? Uh, certainly. I mean, the human creative process uh, has generated quite a few things that nature hasn't, uh, largely because nature hasn't had the evolutionary pressure to do so. Okay. Such as, you know, uh, building airplanes, for example, nature never had any reason to evolve a mechanism for flying things through the air at high speeds. You know, all, all the flying you see in nature is animals getting from one place to another by themselves. So there's lots of stuff out there that nature hasn't done at all, hasn't even attempted. Hmm. I also feel like even you're talking about big data, you got data centers, all the information in these huge data centers could be stored probably more efficiently if we understood how like neurons worked. Better. Big brains. Yeah. So, I mean, like it, there, there are lots of things that we've learned to do well with the technology we have, but with, I, I wonder if that couldn't still be done better by nature if we understood it better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking more along the lines of like, there's a lot of problems you see in computer science that are done more efficiently by computer systems than by humans who are debatably the epitome of mathematical problem solving in the natural world i don't know i think there's been a lot of research saying that humans aren't the epitome of a lot of things yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so what what is evo- fair we, we, we're, we've touched on what it's not good for what is evolutionary robotics good for ever those evolutionary programs good for so uh it's really good at finding non-intuitive solutions so the idea behind it is that you uh, you set up like it's called a genetic algorithm. So it's a very simple loop uh, in software. Generally, that goes you you create a population of of potential robots, let's say, and you you evaluate them all on some task, and then you select the ones that did better than others. You mutate them randomly, and then you loop back and then test them all again, and so on and so forth. And then over thousands and thousands of generations, you can evolve robots that are good at the task you're evolving towards. And so this takes human creativity out of the loop. You don't have an engineer sitting down and saying, oh, this is the problem I want to solve. This is the robot I'm going to build. You just say, this is the problem I want to solve. And you let evolution be the creative engine. And you let the random mutations try different things out. And you use the selection mechanism to pick the uh, the robots that are doing better than others. 
Now you're, you're, you're engineering the situation though, by selecting like what's allowed to mutate and what the variables are, right? You're not just sort of saying like, give me a randomly shaped robot. I mean, you could, that could be your selection criteria. Yeah. Yes. You're, you're engineering, uh, the robot through the parameters. So through the, the fitness function it's called. So how you select them, how you mutate them, how you even represent them. So they have what's called genomes and you have to represent these robots in some fashion and how you do this and then how you mutate the genome and how you select them will all have an effect on the final outcome. So like, can you give us an example of like what kind of problem you might solve with one of these robots? Sure. Actually, there's a, there's a great website out there called Boxcar2D, and it runs an evolutionary algorithm in your web browser. And what it is evolving is a boxcar that basically drives uh, in two dimensions. And the fitness function is how far it drives in this simulated world. And what mutates is the shape of the robot, the position of the wheels, and the sizes of the wheels and the number of wheels. And so oftentimes it'll generate one that'll fall to pieces the moment it enters the world and obviously gets a very low fitness. But other times it'll bounce and flip and fall and move down the path and you'll have a higher fitness. And then over many generations, if you sort of leave it running overnight and you come back to your browser in the morning, you'll see a very good, well-designed boxcar for, for this, this world. Okay. And that, and that might change depending on which world it was fed and that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Some worlds have more hills and in the, in, on the website, actually, the worlds do change. Oh, cool. And so they have some of them. Yeah. Are very flat. And then you don't, you get sort of a certain type of robot. Others are more hilly. You get other, other types of robots that maybe won't flip over as easily. Are there situations where this not really solution? Cause I assume based on what you were describing, there isn't really like a point where you're like, this is the solution, unless you have a criteria that sort of sets a flag that's like, now I'm done. I reached the performance I wanted. Is there a situation where you don't end up with a solution or maybe you end up with a not altogether desirable solution? All the time, all the time. Okay. It's um, it's a stochastic algorithm, which means that it's based a lot on probabilities. So mutations happen with a certain randomness. And then when you have a mutation, it happens in different ways, depending on randomly generated parameters. And so every time you run it, you actually get different answers. And sometimes you're going to get nothing. It's going to go down a certain part of the search base where there's no good solutions and it'll just stay there and it won't, it won't leave that part of the search base. You'll come back the next morning and you'll have junk, but other times it'll find really interesting answers. And if you run it several times in a row, you might get several different interesting answers, which is really kind of cool as well. So it, it's not only creative in finding one good solution. It could be creative at finding many different possible solutions. And it's like, wow. this is also, I think of, Right about this is good for breaking out of like we may have found based on what we know a local maxima in terms of an effectiveness, but this helps us break out of our paradigm of like how we might solve a problem. Yeah, there's there's a great example actually. There was a an antenna that was flown on a on a NASA mission that was designed through a related field called genetic programming, and it's this completely unintuitive design of all these different twists and turns that just happens to be a very good antenna, but there's no way that a human would have designed this because it's completely counter uh, human intuition. So yeah, definitely. This is the, I, Pete, you were telling me about this with a group that did uh, genetic programming of FPGAs and they made, they ended up with it. Wasn't you? Okay. Maybe no. I was reading somewhere. I'm going to have to go find this link because <laughs> that's why I look really confused. Okay. I was, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about what I read and you can tell me if this is the same thing. It was a group that, um, they were looking at genetically programming FPGAs and they wanted an FPGA that could, um, that could uh, distinguish between two tones. You'd feed it a, a, a two different frequencies. 
and it had an output that would go on or off depending on which frequency was was fed into it. And so they did it genetically. They had they just sort of randomly generated an FPGA um, gates inside the FPGA, and they um, they fed in a signal and they said, "Okay, is it going to respond to the signal?" Obviously, it didn't. And they did this hundreds of thousands of times, and eventually they got to an FPGA that turned on when you fed in a, a like a sine wave. And then they did it hundreds of thousands more times. And eventually they got to an FPGA that would, would turn on when you fed it one frequency and off when you fed another frequency. And they opened it up, like they looked in the FPGA code and nobody could understand how it worked. They had, it had like code that made no sense. It had a chunk of gates off on one side that weren't connected to anything else. <laughs> it was, it was, it was really crazy. And it was using, um, the physics of the interior of the FPGA in ways that nobody had ever expected it to work on a, on a sem, like the semiconductor level. And the cool thing was if you took that code and put it in a different FPGA, it didn't work. And if you took out the little gates that weren't connected to anything off on the side, it didn't work as well, even though they shouldn't have done anything. And so nobody would ever have thought of that solution. Like you could never have conceived it with normal understandings of how FPGAs worked. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting because it also works in that manner for your own code. So uh, this has happened many occasions where I've gone to bed and woken up the next morning and the fitness of whatever I was evolving was through the roof. And I was really excited, you know, I thought this is going to pass the Turing test. This is, this is the singularity. Uh, but in reality, it had just found a bug in my code and exploited it. <laughs> so for example, I was doing uh, what's called an artificial life simulation where you just have these agents that move around in a simulated world. Mm. Uh, and I had an energy parameter and the more they moved, the more their energy would dissipate. And, uh, after they ran out of energy, they would die. And so I woke up the next morning and they were just all over the place. And I had forgotten an absolute value in my energy calculations. And so they evolved to drive backwards and thus gain energy. <laughs> and, and so they, be- they became immortal. That's awesome. Oh, it's so cool. So it helps with de- debugging because it, it really does, uh, <laughs> it does find all your silly mistakes and points them out to you in glaring terms. So what they're saying is there's, there's no bugs in nature because if there were, we would all be immortal because you would have evolved a way to like walk backwards and de-age yeah physics is a tough one (laughs) physics has been really well thought out i feel like i agree with you that if we're going to de-age walking backwards is going to be part of it (laughs) you just have to walk backwards everywhere yeah this is our new theory someone needs to walk backwards their whole life just to see if it works there was that woman recently who ran a marathon backwards we should ask her how she's doing (laughs) do you feel younger I uh, know. Then they, just be like, no, you're just getting fitter from running a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's cool. So, what 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 sort of problems are, have you used it to solve recently? Uh, so there's a classic one, which is sort of like these these pole balancing tasks. Uh, and the idea is you have uh, a pendulum that's attached to another pendulum that's on a cart that can move back and forth in two dimensions, mm-hmm. and you want to try and balance one pendulum and then the other pendulum on top of that pendulum together, just using the motions of the cart. Uh, and we wanted to compare this with uh, sort of what can be done by hand. So I, I worked with another prof, and we haven't published this work yet, but we're working on it. And he was- Tell un- us all of the details. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, I'm going to take notes. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> so he was unable to find uh, a controller that would be able to take the system from a resting state, so everything's sort of hanging down with gravity, and swing both pendulums up into an upright state and then balance them indefinitely. And then I ran this through the evolutionary algorithm and I threw a lot of computing power at this one actually. And I was able to find something. What's a lot? Uh, this was, I guess it wasn't that much. I guess this was maybe a quad core machine for, I don't know, maybe, maybe a week. 
Okay, yeah. Maybe maybe four or five days. Yeah, I guess it wasn't that much, but... Because uh, I know from hearing peripherally about some of your work, a lot, it can be a lot. A yeah, lot. A, a lot can be a lot. Yeah, this yeah. wasn't... A lot, a lot, but it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a, we're not talking like mid-range a lot, mid-range a lot. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's about right. Yeah. It's like, pretty, pretty accurate. So sometimes we're talking like supercomputer processing of this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, um, the university of Toronto is part of a, a consortium that has a supercomputer and I do run a lot of my stuff on there. Hmm. It's very helpful because it's very helpful because you need to run, uh, many iterations because of the stochastic nature of, of the algorithm. Mm-hmm. So you can't just run it once and then call it a day. I have to run this a hundred times to show that in this percentage of the times it produced these results and this percentage it produced those results and so on and so forth. Huh. Okay. So one run of this, uh, when I was running the supercomputer, it took two days. And so I want to do a hundred runs. And so I can't do that consecutively. I have to push it out onto a large system and run it in parallel. So even if you come out with a, a solution that looks great, you have to run it another hundred times just to make sure that it usually gives you that solution or there isn't something that's even better or it, it depends if you're doing science or engineering, really. If you're doing engineering and you've got one that works, <laughs> great. And, you know, call it a day and head home early. But uh, if you're doing science, you've got to run it many times to, to get a, a good grasp on how the algorithm is working. Huh. That's cool. What, uh, are there problems that you can't apply this sort of algorithm to? Cause I feel like based on our, our discussion so far, people are going to get the impression that like, it's going to be used to solve all of the world's problems. It sounds like a miracle, like algorithm process. Well, I don't know. I I, th- I think it is personally, but I'm <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pretty biased source. It is actually. Yeah. yeah but w- one of the things that's really challenging is um it's uh, sort of the input space and the output space. So, I mean, human beings, if you if you look at it, our brain takes in you know millions of different signals simultaneously mm-hmm. and works its magic and then we have many different outputs we can move in all these different directions and we can use our vocal cords but an evolutionary algorithm can't do that uh at least at, in its current state so a lot of my work is actually writing pre and post processing algorithms to bring the number of inputs down into a mag- manageable amount and by manageable i mean like 10 inputs and like two or three outputs so really really small mm-hmm. uh and so if you want to evolve uh, something to, to do computer vision, let's say, and you want to use just individual pixels and you're looking at, you know, 1080p, there's no way you're going to get a reasonable answer out of that unless you, there are some pretty advanced algorithms out there that might be able to get something, but generally you're going to have to do some pre-processing first to get that down to a manageable size. I have, um, just to sort of take a sideways step, you keep talking about random. How, how random is random? Because I, I know that's something that, that, not a lot of people realize is that what we consider random numbers, especially for computer are never random. They're all pseudo random, right? Right. So where, how random is random for you? And if like, where's it coming from? Yeah. I'm, I'm using just like a, the basic sort of C plus plus randomizer, which okay. is, there has been research that shows that better randomizers produce better results. Cause like you're saying, there are inherent biases in these pseudo random number generators. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely a problem. Yeah. So it's not as random as it could be. Like, could you, could you, would you sometimes like write code that would realize it would evolve to better exploit the random number generator that was evolving? <laughs> I, I haven't seen that personally, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if that has happened. <laughs> like that would be really cool. I don't know. It would, uh, I guess you'd only really see it in like the rate of evolution. You'd end up with better solutions faster if it realized what was going to mutate when. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. It seems like you're just like, creating something and then fighting with it and like trying to stop it from taking advantages of what you're doing. And it's, it's weird. That's exactly what a lot of the design process <laughs> is, is you have a fitness function and then it does something you don't want it to do. And it's because it's, it's following the fitness function exactly. And you're like, no, you know what I meant with the fitness function? Come on, <laughs> come on evolution. 
you know, you know what I'm trying to do here. So a lot of the time it's just, I'll, I'll run it for days on end and then I'll come back and be like, Oh, I got to redesign my fitness function. And that's so much of it. And that's a lot of computer scientists yeah. say negative things about, you know, genetic algorithms because they consider it like a black art. And in a sense, it sort of is. You have to play with mutation rates. You have to play with your fitness function until you get something that you want out of it. So are you trying to be like with your fitness function, you're trying to be intentionally vague with what your goal is? Uh, totally, totally. But so how does that work? Like how do, <laughs> how do you be intentionally vague with math? I feel like math is inherently not vague. Uh, it's, it's, you don't, you don't really do it with math necessarily. So if you're doing, uh, for robotics, you'll have like a simulation world. Uh, and I'll get into what, what the problems with that are in a second. But basically, if you're trying to evolve on hardware, I mean, the FPGA example is an example where they did evolve it on hardware, but generally you don't have enough hardware to run a thousand agents for a thousand generations. And doing it on hardware would be a lot slower because you're limited to real time. You're right? limited to real time and you're limited to the, to the hardware itself. You're going to have a lot of negative bad mutations that could literally break your hardware. If you don't put in a lot of restrictions, they might just do something that shouldn't be done on that robot and, and break your, it. And your solution, like the FPGA example, could be like so hardware specific, it's useless outside of that particular chip. That's called overfitting, yeah. And that can happen in simulation as well. Oh, okay. Huh. Um, that's where it's just sort of, if you just, if you just test it on one version of your problem, then it's just going to be so good at that one version that it's going to be useless at everything else. Okay. So you, you need to design it so that it's, it's tested on a variety of different problems to try and get it to generalize. Is there like a, an established, spot where you can sort of identify that you're becoming over specific like i'm just basing this off of my own experience using not genetic algorithms but other optimization algorithms where it's sort of like you have a curve and you're like roughly this area of the curve is a good zone for something reasonably generic beyond that it's this particular sample data that is particular to this case is not going to be what it sees in the real world yeah you have um what's called so this is uh, for machine learning in general you have a training set, a test set, and a validation set. So the training set is what you are training your algorithm on. So you're running the evolution on a certain, on certain scenarios. And then you're going to be getting, your fitness should be going up if all, all is well. But then you test the good one, the good agents in, at the training set, you test them on a different set of uh, scenarios, which is your test set. And that's how you decide which ones are good at generalizing. And then once you, once you're done with that, you test it on another set, the validation set to make sure your solution isn't just good at your test set or and your training set, but is good at, at new stuff as well. Mm. So actually coming back to, to your question, uh, so you have this simulation world and let's say we want to evolve a golf playing robot, a, a simple fitness function. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I, think I, mean, be, I think it'd be a lot of fun actually. Yeah. Um, but a, a simple fitness function would just be uh, the number of strokes until you get into the hole. So it's very, very general. Uh, we're not influencing it in any way, shape or form, but in reality, it's, there's this thing called the bootstrap problem. So your initial agents are going to be terrible at golf and none of them are going to get it in the hole. And so you're, they're all going to have a fitness of infinity, basically, if you're trying to minimize the number of shots. Right. Never gets there. Never gets there. And so how are you going to pick, uh, which one's, which one's the best? Which one's yeah. the best? Yeah. You, you can't pick them. They're all equally awful. Right. Uh, and so you uh -huh. have to design a fitness function now. You have to it's, go, it's okay. They're not going to take it personally. <laughs> yeah. Robots don't have feelings. <laughs> but could we evolve them to have feelings? <laughs> That's another good question. So then now you have to go back and you have to look at your fitness function and say, okay, well, you get 10 shots and then your fitness is distant to the hole. And now you're sort of working, working down this path of designing a fitness function that's going to get you your golf playing robot. Oh, okay. And then eventually one of them like accidentally gets it in the hole and it's like the best and that's what feeds all the rest of your evolution. Exactly. Yeah. So you might have to have a second, uh, fitness function then that once you get it in the hole, you get these 
massive bonuses and now you're evolving at number of strokes. Okay. And then all of a sudden you'll have a bunch more that will evolve that will all get it in the hole and then you can start uh, like optimizing within that set. Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really neat. I feel like now we're going to have to build this robot. Easy. That's what we do. We always make up this kind of stuff. <laughs> well, it's, it doesn't have that many. It doesn't have that many variables, does it? <laughs> yeah. it you could what, do what with you a say? peg leg. You could have an attachment. Yeah. that's the, the golf, like the driver. Perfect. Yeah, you, you point it. You point it at the hole, and then you let it play the rest of the game of golf for you. <laughs> I really love the the idea of it compensating. I was just thinking about this, so I'm going to circle back to it because it occurred to me. I love the idea of it compensating for mistakes that you make. Because I had a an experience when I was in grad school where I was using neural networks and I applied them to the robot I was working with and I couldn't figure out why the waveforms I was supposed to be getting were taking so long to arrive at like some sort of close to optimal value because theoretically it should be doing it pretty quickly. It was taking quite a while and I realized that the direction I was pushing the robot was the opposite direction that I was reading. I forgot a negative sign. And so it was flipping my entire analysis routine on its head just to compensate for the fact that I forgot a negative sign. Which is just cool. <laughs> like when it was happening, oh, it's it's fixing my mistake for me. It Great. sounds adorable. Right. Like, yeah. Here, I noticed you did something. Yeah. yeah. Let, me, let me take care of that for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what uh, what sorts of like I think we talked a little bit earlier about what sorts of problems you work on now, like in your in your postdoc position, like what are the sorts of things that you can solve with genetic algorithms that uh, are out there as problems people are trying to to look at? So, um, I mean, there's a variety of engineering problems. Uh, one of which is there's a, a robot that we're working on that we're trying to get uh, to basically climb stairs. Okay. Uh, we've got a simulation of, of this robot. It's very crude. And so we've, we're testing it on a variety of different sets of stairs and we're uh, evolving. Basically, the, the what we're evolving is it to stay straight because the hard part is it starts to veer left or right and then it crashes and flips over and it's, bad things happen. So uh, we've got this simulation where we just test this robot on all these different staircases, and it's, it's a fairly, uh, fairly. It's got a lot of physics in the simulation, so it's it's fairly slow, but then it's fairly fairly realistic. And then over time, you just generate these uh, controllers. So these it's high level. So uh, because we're worried about inputs, we have a lot of informa pre information pre-processing, and it makes very high level decisions such as turn left, turn right, and then you have a whole other set of low level stuff that translates that into actual robot movements. Uh, and the, the hard part, though, is that even though it's a good simulation, it doesn't even d come close to doing justice to what the actual robot does. It's very, very difficult to simulate, uh, you know, the real world accurately, especially for something as complex as the, di the, the, the excuse me, the dynamics of uh, staircases mm -hmm. and, and moving up along staircases. And so, to tackle this is called the uh, this is called the reality gap. And so, a lot of evolution robotics robotics problems have this in that you can't easily jump from simulation to hardware. And to do this, you have to introduce a lot of noise into the simulation. That way it doesn't focus on uh, individual inputs as, as much as patterns. Uh, and then by using, by using noise and, and by evolving on a variety of different scenarios, then it's easier to transfer uh, into the actual hardware. And we did actually get this working. So it's not just, oh, wow. it's not just theoretical. Oh, wow. we, we've tested yeah. it on staircases and it does, it does climb staircases. That's really cool. And it comes mm. down as well. It, 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 it we, we only, <laughs> we only evolved it to go up, but since it's just trying to stay straight, um, if you turn it around and drive it down, then it does that as well. It doesn't like slide on its butt down the stairs. It doesn't have a butt. <laughs> oh, I feel like coming down is a lot easier too. You just have to kind of fall over and gracefully though. Gracefully. Yeah. I've learned that too <laughs> in my years of experience. <laughs> I think the robot should have evolved a butt and then it could go, it could slide down the stairs. Yeah. 
That's actually something you can do. Not not a, not a butt in particular, but this uh, you can. You too can have a butt. You too can have. You can all you can evolve um, hardware alongside of the controller. So it's a brain body. So humans didn't just evolve a brain. We we weren't uh, just empty vessels that slowly evolved to have these uh, amazing brains. We our body and stunning good looks and stunning good looks. Of course, how could I forget? <laughs> well, we we evolved brain and body simultaneously, and so this has also been ap- applied to engineering tasks where. In the boxcar 2D example, for uh, you do have the body being evolved, but no brains. It's just it's just using gravity to drive in two dimensions, but you can evolve the controller as well as the body simultaneously. And so, in in a staircase uh, example, if driving down with, on your butt is a good thing, and you had part of your genome was encoding the shape of the robot, then theoretically you could evolve a butt. <laughs> Better butts through evolution. <laughs> We're going to get the butt singularity. It's going to be like, all of a sudden, they'll take over the world. Yes. <laughs> oh, more silence. <laughs> That'll be a really comedic way for the Swing human race to end. We uh, we need some sort of like genetically derived joke machine. Things. No, no, we're, we're doing it. I, every, every episode, I'm going to tell a terrible joke, and I'm learning what doesn't work. That's fair. Yeah. The, pro- the problem is, if, if I understand the genetic algorithms, is you never know when you're done. You get a, you, you'll, you'll keep getting – it'll get a little bit better. But the question is, at which point does it stop being terrible? Or your right? jokes are going to get really specifically funny to really specific people. <laughs> There's exactly one person out there who's going to find everything I say funny. But that's yeah, that's true. One of the hardest things is trying to decide when when to stop. When when is there enough evolution? And if you leave it for you know 24 hours and the fitness hasn't improved, you know who's to say that 10 minutes from now it's gonna it's not, it's not going to jump. There's no, there's no real way of knowing sort of when the process is over. It sounds like gambling. Yeah, it's sort of like gambling, I guess. Gambling with your time. Well, yeah. And it was interesting because <laughs> you were saying you wanted to run it multiple times, run the test multiple times to see if it was repeatable. But it's not so much if you do run it again, you'd get a much worse solution. It's not that it invalidates the first solution. It's just that you got lucky on the first run, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you, you run it a bunch of times just to make sure that they all end up serving the same ballpark. Not that, uh, not that it's not really repeatability so much as you're just making sure that you didn't accidentally just find like a local maxima or. Yeah. Yeah. You, you would run it. I mean, at the bare minimum, I run everything at least 10 times just to see, cause you, you might get a good answer, but there might be a better one just waiting around the corner. So mm-hmm. yeah. That's cool. So it is, it is very much like your analogy, like gambling. It's like, it doesn't matter how, how well you're doing. It's like, you could do better. Yeah. You could do yeah. it one more time and make, and do more success. Yes. You never know. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. So, okay. You're, you're talking about limiting, trying to come down with like limiting sets, inputs and outputs. So the inputs and outputs, are we talking sensor inputs and outputs? Like you're measuring some particular thing and, and feeding it through into a, into a behavior or, like I, I, I only have a tenuous grasp on what exactly you're doing with this information within your algorithms. It's, it's. I mean, it's pretty open. But if you're if you're designing for a robot, then yes, your your inputs would be uh, sensors. So in the case of the stair climbing robot, uh, an IMU, for example. Uh, so it tells you your accelerations in different directions, and that would be your inputs to your controller. And then you're evolving the controller itself. So you're evolving what it does with those inputs and how it translates those into outputs, which again, in the stair climbing example would be yaw. So the, the direction it's facing. Okay. So like an input you're talking, it's, it's a, some sort of scalar value or some sort of measurement value. It's not like you got three binary inputs and like 10 binary outputs or, uh, or, I mean, or could you, it could be as simple as that. Yeah. It could be as simple as that. Um, a lot of times if, if, uh, 
if I'm working with robots, I like to sort of abstract away from, from the sensors. And so instead of having sort of, uh, a distance to, to the wall for a wall following, uh, task, for example, I might just convert that to binary. So I'll put a threshold in. If the sensor is above this threshold, then it's a one. Otherwise it's a zero. Again, any sort of simplifications you can do yourself will greatly enhance the evolutionary process. But if you like, if you set a threshold, then your robot's only ever going to do something sort of at that threshold, right? If, if you set, you want to be four feet away from the wall, your robot's all, whatever it's going to do, it's going to do it four feet from the wall. Exactly. Yep. Okay. It's a trade off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you get, you get less, less flexibility for reaction, but you can do more interesting things with that at that point. Exactly. Oh, and you, you can also build on it too. If you start simple, you evolve something, then you can use that as the base for the next step in evolution. So you can start with binary inputs, and then once you get something that has a reasonable behavior, you can then have re- the real, real-valued inputs instead, and and go from there. Cool. What's something that's been done with evolutionary algorithms that you think is really cool? Because I find it interesting. People who are specialists in different fields who see something in either the first case where it's it's really cool for people who don't know about that particular topic, but really, really cool for someone who does know what's actually going on. Or a situation where to someone who is familiar with that situation is amazing, but to someone else, they're like, I don't get it. <laughs> like, I'm interested in like, what is, what to you that's been done with evolution algorithms is like, this is the coolest thing anyone's done. Uh, recently, actually, there was a, a publication. It was on, it was on the cover of nature, which I thought was, it's, it's nice to, to see evolution, uh, sort of getting, getting to that point because it's, it's been sort of <laughs> go evolution. Yeah. Because it's really, this, the field has really been, uh, chastised i'd say by the computer science community for a long time anyway are, are not the creationists by the computer not, not, science well the creationists too I've got, I've, got, I've got a buddy i've got a buddy who who gets like hate mail from creationists oh wow <laughs> i'm not oh, even joking man. yeah it, but anyway what else, you're, you're saying it's nice to see evolution in nature uh, <laughs> i see what you did there <laughs> all right that Ow. was that was my good joke for the day yeah okay. now you're done yes okay so something you saw in nature that was really cool so it's called um it's called novelty search. So it's using the evolutionary algorithm not to maximize a fitness function, but just to maximize novelty. So you have some sort of criteria that measures what your controller looks like. And then you want to try and find different controllers that obviously are successful at the task, but that are as different as possible as the previous ones already found. Oh my God. And so they use this to generate a huge collection. In this case, it was, I think it was six or eight legged robot and they just generated a huge range of different gates that allow the robot to move forward. And what they did then was they took this collection, which they evolved offline and they put it on the robot. And then when they damage the robot, they have this other algorithm in there that allows it to select one of the other gates that had already been evolved. And oh so it's able to self repair in minutes. That was, was so cool. I was, I was pretty blown insane. away by that. It was yeah. great. Yeah, it, was, it was a really cool. Can I give another example of a thing I read about evolutionary design that I thought was cool? No. Oh, I'll allow it. <laughs> Thank you, Abby. Um, I was reading an interesting article. There are people who are trying to evolve the best chair. And so they took a whole bunch of like designs of chairs and like 3D mapped them and turned them into voxels and then like volume pixels. And then they evolved a chair and they did with all these really like weird melty looking chairs. And they had people like sit in the, like they 3D printed them and sat in them and said, no, this is a terrible chair. <laughs> and, they, and they evolved. They ended up this weird like muted, like mutant child of a whole bunch of these other like well-designed chairs. But apparently it was really comfortable, <laughs> but it was the <laughs> ugliest thing. <laughs> And they didn't, that wasn't one of their criteria, I guess. I don't, I, I don't know. I think aesthetic, it was supposed to have its own aesthetic as being something yeah. that was like mutated and it did look like it was mutated. I'll have to see if I can find images of it. It was pretty cool looking. Are there places where you've come across that these sorts of algorithms in the world 
in like weird ways, like on Netflix or something. Like I have this weird example for the the stuff that I did where a lot of the work I did was on Neurofuzzy and I was at the Bay, which is a store here in Canada. And, uh, they had a rice cooker that was a Neurofuzzy rice cooker. And I was like, this is the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> like, I just spent four years, like not four years, two years working on Neurofuzzy systems. And it's in a rice cooker that I can buy from the store. What is a Neurofuzzy rice cooker? Well, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> right three minutes or less. So Neurofuzzy in a, in a nutshell is essentially a combination of two different, what are called soft computing algorithms, where one of them takes words and uses words to describe particular conditions in an algorithm. So something like hot, cold, not so hot, a little bit cold, and applies them to sort of uh, whether or not something is more or less that particular word. So for instance, my favorite analogy is a shower, where if you have a very hot shower, that could be a temperature range, and it could basically apply the temperature of the shower to a number of different words. And then each of those has a rule. Like if it's very hot, make it colder. If it's somewhat hot, leave it there or maybe make it a little bit hotter depending on what you want. And the neural part of it is basically like a learning algorithm, like we've been talking about that essentially changes those words and those values to make them more correct over time. So if you don't know what the outcome is and what the answer to each condition is, what the answer to each rule should be, it changes the answers over time to get the results you want. So in my situation for my research, I was doing stuff with um, training post-stroke patients. And basically, it would do exercises with them and try to match them to a therapist. And if it wasn't working properly, it would change the conditions like you're pushing too far to the left or you're pushing too far to the right to make it work more like that therapist. With a rice cooker, <laughs> um, it's basically rice is one of those intangible things where people like it more sticky or less sticky or a little bit sticky or not sticky. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I like, I, I wanted like a stickiness index. Yeah. And so basically, uh, that has a lot to do with how the rice is made, but it's a very intangible thing where it can make the rice one way and depending on the type of rice and the temperature of the water, when it went into the cooker and how long it cooked for and at what temperature it cooked for, you get a different type of rice with a different consistency. And so it's an easy way for people to say, I want more sticky rice or less sticky rice, or I want it to be sushi rice or brown rice. And I want it to have this particular feel and texture and it does it for you through the magic. So the original question was, is, is, uh, is computer evolution out in the wild somewhere? Is there somewhere someone could go like buy a rice cooker that like was evolved? I, I'm not sure to be honest. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't come across that. I haven't had that, that rice cooker moment, let's call it. Um, I, I see it a lot in sci-fi though, which I'm, I'm, I'm really happy about. So I see it in a lot of books where there are sort of AIs walking around. Uh, they do mention that they came from an evolutionary process and also artificial life, which is sort of a, a related field where it's just sort of, uh, these open-ended simulations of evolution that, that pops up as well a lot in in science fiction, but I, I haven't seen it too much in the in the wild. Uh, it is, I guess other than in the wild, it, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Good point. Uh, it is Sorry. out there in um, in finance actually, but they don't like to talk about it, so you don't really hear much about it. But we we all know it's there. It turns and, out the whole stock exchange is run by some AI somewhere that we accidentally evolved. His name is Clarence. <laughs> Yeah, sort of. I mean, <laughs> except for the Clarence part, I'm not sure about that. But but you don't you don't I've get said too much. You don't, you don't get to know about it because the moment something works, they they'll take it out of you know the the scholarly articles. You'll never you'll never read about it. Yeah. So 
Uh, I mean, everyone in evolution, evolutionary algorithms, they know it's there and they know it's being used, but it's hard to say exactly how because there's very little information out there about it. Are there other competing algorithms that you come up against? Like, are there other ways that people are doing things that are different but do the same job and you're sort of like, ah, oh, I could have done that so much better with evolution, but you went and used like a reinforcement learning or some other thing that is different. Simulated and- annealing or whatever that was. Yeah. That one just sounds so cool. Simulated annealing. It's a fun word. It is a cool. See, I like, like simulated. It's also an easy algorithm too. It's very, it's very straightforward simulated annealing and it works pretty well. Um, I don't know. Uh, I do see that from time to time. Uh, I guess things that I'd like to try and apply evolution to, but I'm not as cocky to say that I can do it better <laughs> because that's often not the case. Um, yeah. these, I'm just thinking like, uh, like, like self-driving cars and like some of the stuff that Boston Dynamics does and things like that where it's sort of like, Oh, that's such a cool little thing that you've made. I wonder how you came up with that algorithm. Yeah, totally. I, yeah. I, I would love to sit down with, you know, self-driving car or some Boston Dynamics. <laughs> I'd love to just get my hands on a Tesla and. <laughs> yeah, and, and try and evolve things for that. I, 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 I would, I'd see things around me all the time that I would like to try and evolve algorithms for, but I'm not going to go and say I can do it better because I probably can't. Because these, a lot of these algorithms have been worked on for many years, for decades, yeah. such as computer vision, for example. So to they're come, very specific. They're very specific, exactly. Yeah. So to come in and say, I can do this better after you guys have been working on this for 10 years. That's unrealistic. <laughs> but there are lots of things out there that I do want to attempt that I just don't have the time for. But or, like, after 10 years of doing something might be the perfect time to come in with that because after 10 years, they may have painted themselves into a corner in terms of a solution. Like it might be exactly when you need this kind of an algorithm <laughs> to break out into a whole new a whole new paradigm for a solution. Paul's ready to disrupt golf carts. <laughs> the time has come. I, I agree. Uh, I agree completely, actually. But the hard part is convincing other people to go down that road when, in, like, initially your results are going to be worse than the state of the art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you got to. You, you got to. Yeah. It's it's a local maxima because you have to go down in every direction to find the next the exactly. better solution. That's a lonely road. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to go the down to go downhill first. Yeah, no, you got to build, got to build the uh, self-driving go- or golf cart that can also play golf. So you just ride along and drink beer. <laughs> but in nature so. yeah yeah it sounds yeah. like my kind of golf it sounds like a natural iteration of the current version of golf i know yeah it seems good to yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna go somewhere with podcasting and drinking beer and yeah evolving and yeah we, right. we've already been around that that route all this evolution mm-hmm. talk is making me think of facts i have one more qu- okay i have one more question but i'll let you have some facts first yeah you, you, your question can bring us back after the fact Okay. Right, I like so. it. Let's let's try this, and then if it doesn't work, we'll go back and try again. Yeah. Yeah. We'll start over from okay. the top. It's time the fun fact of the week. So my fun fact of the week, which I've been thinking of this whole time, is that okay. So snakes, they uh, talking about evolution. They don't have noses the, the way we do, and they they smell by sticking their tongue out, and it's forked, and they pick up smells with both ends of the fork, and they pull it back in their mouth, and they touch it to the roof of their mouth where they have smell receptors. And they have two separate smell receptors so they can smell in stereo, which is so they can actually, like, follow something by a smell by looking left and right by what smells stronger. It'd be like being able to close, like, one nostril and say, like, oh, yeah, no, it smells more to the left. Are they unique in being able to smell in stereo? I think there are a few other lizards that have, like, it's pretty much anything with a forked tongue. It tends to have that. I just love the term smell in stereo. Stereo smell vision <laughs> I think it's cool that they, like, bring in the scent into their mouth. Like, come closer. Yeah, they just, like, collect it with their tongue. Yeah. I'm going to lick this smell out of the air. That was an unnecessary sound effect. <laughs> that was really scary. Like, really, really creepy. <laughs> Maybe I'll cut it. I'll try again. <laughs> no, no, no. We have to document the whole evolutionary process of this episode. Oh, God. 
Otherwise, otherwise we're being academically dishonest. What about the truck outside that's honking? We're going to leave that in too? Yes. Okay, I didn't cool. hear a truck. It's, it's, it's a known variable. It could cause us to have an even better podcast. Yeah. I mean, it already has. Yeah, I think it has. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what was your question that was, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> you had one job. Oh God. Um, it had to do with, <laughs> I, I, I don't honestly remember. <laughs> Oh, I do. I do. Okay. Okay. Um, I was wondering if there are talking about problems that you can solve, um, that are out there that people are using different algorithms for. Are there on the flip side problems that haven't been solved that you'd love to get a crack at where it's like, no one's figured out how to fix this, but you're pretty sure that the magic of evolutionary algorithms could find a solution. Yeah. So, uh, lately, I've been thinking more uh, in scientific terms than in uh, engineering terms about those sorts of questions. And there are some of like the big questions about, you know, where human language comes from. Uh, what is consciousness? Big, big questions, I feel, can be explored through evolutionary simulations. Uh, and we're still – we're working on publishing a paper uh, that I did sort of exploring uh, the origins of language. And what's really fascinating about it is that it can generate a fossil record. So communication – these words, they cannot be stuck in mud and then somehow preserved for us to find millions of years later. And so there's no real way to go through archaeology to understand how communication evolved. But if we design a digital simulation where evolution can occur very rapidly, we can take snapshots of the populations as often as we want, and then we can piece together step by step the evolutionary process that brings us to communication. Oh, cool. So the, the interesting thing is not the solution, but how it got to that solution. The solution is also pretty interesting as well, because you look at it and you're like, well, this is great, but there's nothing in nature like this. So then it brings up more questions like, why aren't things in nature like this? Uh, but then, yeah, it also provides you with uh, the evidence of how such a thing could have evolved in nature. So in that case, would you be running and looking for solutions that are close to what already exists in nature? Because then the you look for parallels in how you got to that particular solution? Or but the, the hard part, especially coming at it from a scientific perspective, is you don't want to bias it. So you don't want to bias it towards something that we already know exists because then you're just giving it then, – then it's like a tautology. Then, of course, you're going to get what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So you want, you, want to, you want to design something that's very open-ended and abstract, but that produces something that's interesting. So again, you've got to run it. See what comes out of it and then change, you change parameters in the simulation itself. And then you see what comes out after that. And then, yeah. And then look at the fossil record. That's cool. I feel like then we could end up with like, a, come up with a way of speaking that has like way better bandwidth than what we're doing right now. In the future, we'll all be like yelling at each other, like 1800 baud modems or something. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, I can't wait. I know. <laughs> that that is the future I'm hoping for. <laughs> That's so cool. The stuff you do is so cool. It is so cool. I'm really excited. I didn't think of any questions because I was just listening to you the entire time. <laughs> Abby was wrapped the whole time. I was. Oh, thank you. Appreciate okay, it. Okay. I think this is that's probably a good place to wrap up. So uh we are, forgot- we are you sure we should stop here maybe we, maybe there's a really good part of the podcast coming if we just keep just going slightly over it's the horizon yeah. yeah no it, then, we, then we have to balance part of our uh, our fit curve has to be whether or not the listeners get mad at us for taking like 70 minutes again <laughs> yeah i don't think anyone's got mad but i'm sure internally some of them are annoyed uh yeah i think no they're... one gives us feedback remember when we wanted this to be 30 minutes no no we did initially <laughs> that was never part of our fitness curve <laughs> 
All right. So last week we didn't talk about our beers. So let's let's uh, take a second. What are, what are you? Yeah. Uh, what's the guest beer? The guest beer is a Granville Island Winter Ale. It is some sort of stout, even though it doesn't say stout on there. It doesn't say anything on it. I was. It says that there's caramel and chocolate. It doesn't actually and, specify and kind vanilla. of beer it is. Yeah. It's like super flavorful. So the first sip especially kind of like knocks you off your your, your seat. Uh, and after after that, it mellows, mellows out a bit. But it is very delicious. It's very tasty. I highly recommend it. Nice. Okay, so we need an evolutionary ranking scale for the beer. Uh, on a scale from like protozoa to, um, what's the most complex life form? I guess human. Or how about a singularity AI? Okay, yes. Okay, that's cool. The most yeah. Smart. All right, yeah. so from, from protozoa to singularity, what, where does this beer fall? It's a pretty smart dog, I'd say. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's a Labrador. <laughs> they, they are nice dogs. I like those. Yeah. They're so fluffy. It's so fluffy. Um, all right. So let's <laughs> see. We would have missed that if we stopped earlier. <laughs> all right. We, we, I think we can safely say that there are no, there, there's nothing better coming after this. So no, I think we're good. Probably not. Yeah. So, so try to throw some, we need some, we need some addresses. Input. We need some inputs to this. Like, we, yeah. So this has all been output. We need, we need some feedback to our for our algorithm. ongoing overarching progression of podcast creation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, to do so. You can reach us at how do you eng on Twitter, mm-hmm. or uh, you can reach us at feedback at how do you dot engineer. Yeah, that and, works. Uh, and also something on Pinterest. Yep, and yep. Facebook dot com slash how do you engineer. And you can rank us on iTunes, and that will make us happy. Yes. Yes. Sweet. That's all. We're really bad at like this ending thing. We need to evolve a new one. We need a goodbye. There needs to be some kind of really nice sign off. I'm just like. That's what Cam was saying. It's something to do with, like, this was How Do You Engineer, brought to you by Bagels.